In many ways, the Jewish experience during the Great Depression was no different than others, yet in some ways it was entirely unique. How was the Jewish community affected? What are the Depression's lingering impacts? And what lessons can we learn today? In this class, we take a closer look at the Jewish experience during the Great Depression. As always, please like and share this podcast, ask a question, or leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Meth. The Jewish experience during the Great Depression. We just read um, last weekend, holiday of Shavuos, we read the Megillas Rus, the Book of Ruth, a remarkable story, a tremendous book. A lot of, we talked about it on Shabbos last week, very subtle story, but one of the most profound books in all of scripture. A couple of lessons that I think are germane for tonight's discussion. The verse tells us, Parak Bez, Hasa Gimel, chapter 2, verse 3. Rose, if you recall, she was a Moabite princess. She goes back with her mother-in-law, Nomi, back to the land of Israel. They're destitute, impoverished. They have no money, totally broke. They're literally collecting alms for the poor, charity. Leket, Shikha, and Peah, our sages teach us. There's laws in the Torah for the, when you harvest your field, certain Stalks of wheat, they fall on the ground. The loose stalks are to be left for the poor. And Rus, to support herself and her mother-in-law, collects this leket. That's how destitute they are. And the verse tells us, Vatelach, she goes, Vatovo, and she arrives. Vatelaki, Basade, and she collects this leket. She gathers in the field this loose wheat, stalks of wheat that fall. Behind the other people who are gathering. Our sages highlight two things about Rus that they find noteworthy in this verse. Number one, our sages point out, Vatilakate, she was particular with the laws of Leket. As I mentioned, the halacha is, the Torah tells us, the law is when you go and you harvest your field, if one or two pieces of wheat Stalks of wheat fall, they're to be left to the poor. But the Talmud tells us the halacha is, the law is, if three or more stalks of wheat fall, they are to stay, they are to stay for the owner. It's not like it. It's not ownerless. It doesn't go to the poor. It's only one or two. Three, you can't keep. And the verse, the say, our sages tell us that Rus was particular. He was extra careful to make sure that the leket, this charity, this leftover wheat, this fallen wheat, she was very particular to make sure only that which was permissible for her to take, would she take. Only the stalks, there were two. She saw three, she wouldn't touch it. She was very particular. Additionally, our sages tell us, she picks up this wheat, this free wheat for the poor, she picks it up behind the other gatherers. They just tell us behind, as if to say she did it in an inconspicuous way. She did it in a modest way. She didn't bend over inappropriately. She gathered the, the, this leket very modestly. She was at Sanua. Tremendous modesty. My rabbi, one of my rabbis highlighted. It's very nice. It's beautiful. Great. Wonderful. But there's a lesson there that our sages are highlighting. 
One of the greatest challenges in life, we all have challenges. Everyone has challenges. We all have nisyonos. We all have difficulties. There's nobody on earth that doesn't have challenges. A particular form of challenge is oni, poverty. And it's a very difficult challenge. And when a person is suffering financially, when you have real poverty, two things very quickly go out the window. Number one is your regard for the laws of Geneva. How careful are you about honesty, about only taking that which is yours and not rounding the edges and not justifying, oh, there are three stalks of wheat. The owner doesn't care. I'm broke. I'm dying of hunger. I'll just take the three stalks of wheat. It's so easy to justify or to discount. Who cares? Look at my situation. I'm so poor. I'm so destitute. Two stalks, three stalks, does it really matter? And of course, the answer is it does really matter. And our sages highlight, are highlighting with the story of Rus is that Rus was a wonderful woman. She was a pious woman. Look, she had the opportunity. She could have taken things that weren't hers, but she didn't. She overcame that nisayon, that challenge of poverty. Number two, when a person's suffering poverty, our dignity goes out the window very quickly. You care about self-preservation. You care about you know, survival, about making sure you know, I have what to eat. My loved ones have what to eat. It's very hard to preserve your dignity. And the Navi, the prophet, is highlighting that Rus, despite her, her situation, despite her predicament, was very careful to make sure she collected that leket, that, that charity, with modesty, with sneos, she maintained her dignity. Now, the story of the Great Depression is obviously naturally going to be a story of financial suffering, not just for the Jewish people, but, and not just for the United States. But it was a worldwide depression. You know, the financial situation was, you know, really, really difficult. And for many people, Jews and non-Jews alike, that meant often not preserving one's dignity and not being particularly scrupulous and honest when it comes to a person's financial affairs. It takes real strength and it should be a real lesson. And hopefully one of the lessons we'll walk away with, something we need to think about, you know, is please God. You know, none of us have, have to experience the difficulties and the challenges and the economic woes that affected the country in the 30s, you know, but we've all had our ups and downs. And to recognize when it comes to moments of financial crisis, making sure we're particular about our honesty, our integrity, when it comes to all of our business transactions and all of our relationships, and to make sure we always preserve our dignity and our modesty, recognize it's a challenge. But there's a second lesson that I feel is like very important, just as by way of introduction. I mentioned this on Shabbos, but I'll repeat it again because I see one Golden Knights hat here. Go Knights, go. Your Western Conference champions. And yes, you know, my family, we're, we're, we've gotten into hockey recently. And if you're not a hockey fan, I apologize. Just, just wait with me for two minutes. There's a lesson here. Is the Golden Knights, if you're not aware, should be. Golden Knights are playing for the Stanley Cup. Go Knights. Knights in five. You heard it here first, folks. Knights in five. Yeah, I called it Knights in five. And the question is, is I mean, they're an, they're an amazing team. They really are an amazing team. We spoke about what I think makes them so impressive. One of the most remarkable things, if you aren't a hockey fan, one of the most remarkable things about this particular team, about the Vegas Golden Knights, 
is they're, they've now played functionally. Everyone says five goalies. It's really six goalies they've had this year. Their first goalie didn't even make it through the last offseason. Robert Leonard got hurt, right? Then Logan Thompson got hurt. Francois got hurt. Aiden Hill got hurt. Terov got hurt. They brought him quick. He got, they've gone through six goalies. It's just unbelievable. And they've all been really, really good. They've been signed. They got hurt again. They brought the other guy back. They've just cycled in goalie after goal. How is it that six goalies, that's, and they are all playing at such a top-notch level. It's such a remarkable thing. Let me explain that I, I think, you know, we read this book of Rus. We read the book of Rus on Shavuos, the day that commemorates God giving us the Torah. And the question is, why of all books do we read the book of Rus on Shavuos? And Mishabura explains, he says, to teach us that Torah, that when it comes to our Judaism, you want to be successful in your Judaism and in your Torah, recognize that Torah comes through poverty and difficulty. What does that mean? We explained on Shabbos what that means. I think what that means is to recognize if you want to be successful, particularly when it comes to Torah, when it comes to our Judaism, honestly, when it comes to anything of value, recognize it. You're, it's easy to be connected to Torah and Judaism and things are going well. But what happens when the going gets tough? What happens when you encounter Yisurin, difficulties, poverty, challenges? It, it takes a lot of grit, a lot of determination, a lot of passion if we want to be successful. And that's why we read the story of Rus on Shavuos. We talk about what Rus went through. It's unimaginable, the poverty that she was willing to recognize. She was a Moabite princess. She could have just gone off and gone back home, lived a life of wealth, luxury, a pampered lifestyle. But she gave that all up because she believed in the MS and the truth of Torah. She believed in Judaism and was willing to sacrifice to get the job done for something that she believed in. You talked about, you want to know why I think the Vegas Golden Knights are such a successful team. It's written on the back of the t-shirts that all the players on the Vegas Golden Knights had made for themselves, right? The team tried to come up with some logo that they marketed to all of us to try to buy the merch. But the actual players, they came up with their own slogan this year in the playoffs. Did everyone see that? It hurts to win. They put. They all made T-shirts that said it hurts to win. What are they referring to? Something that they don't talk enough about is the Vegas Golden Knights are by far the best team in the league at blocking pucks. Not to get too deep into hockey, but right there, the goal in hockey on defense is to make sure the other team doesn't score goals. There are three ways that that happens. Either the guy shooting the puck on the other team misses. Number two is your goalie stops it. Or number three, one of the other guys who's not a goalie, who's not wearing all that gear, he stops it. Option number three kills. It hurts because you don't have that padding. The Vegas Golden Knights are one of the best teams in the history of the league at blocking shots as skaters. They're basically playing every game with three goalies on the ice at the same time. You want to know why six goalies have been amazing? They're fine. They're okay. It's their recognition that it hurts to win. And one of the lessons of the Great Depression, the Great Depression was a time of tremendous difficulty. Oni, Surin, it was a tough time for the country and particularly for the Jewish American elements in this country. And many Jews and their Judaism did slip, as we're going to see in a few moments. 
But I think it's a lesson for all of us to recognize if we want to be successful, whether it comes to our Judaism, whether it comes to our Torah, whether it comes to winning a Stanley Cup or anything that we find to be of value, recognize it hurts to win. We're going to cover in the next couple of minutes a couple of Rashi Prakim, a couple of basic areas when it comes to the Jewish experience during the Great Depression. We're going to take a quick moment just to do a quick overview. Who were the Jews that were in the United Again, tonight's class is going to be primarily focused, not exclusively, but primarily focused on the Jewish experience in the United States. As I mentioned, the Great Depression affected the entire globe. We're going to keep most of this conversation to the United States. How did, who were the Jews in the United States during the 1930s? What was Jewish life looking like? What did it look like during the Depression? Time permitting, we'll talk about Jews in the New Deal. Time for that. And if we have more time, we'll offer some concluding thoughts. Who are the Jews that were in the United States in the 1930s? Quick review. We're going to go through American Jewish history in 45 seconds. Is everyone ready? Here it goes. Uh, who are the Jews in the United States in 1930? The Jewish community in the United States of America began in September of 1654 when 23 Jews from Recife, Brazil, arrive in New Amsterdam on the run from the Spanish Inquisition. These were Jews that were Spartac Portuguese Jews who had bounced around from Nether the Netherlands, from Holland, from Portugal, from Spain, from 1492 from the expulsion. A century and a half later, they are still on the run. And they arrive in New Amsterdam in 1654. These are Spartac Jews. And they established Shoal, the first Jewish congregation, was not the Turo Synagogue. I knew you were going to say that. It's a trick yeah. question. That's the oldest building. The oldest congregation is Congregation Sheirith Israel. It's called the Spanish-Portuguese Synagogue. It's still around today. It's an Orthodox synagogue. It's moved a couple times, but it still exists. Now, when the Jews arrived in 1654, I just want to highlight one point. So we'll see it's going to be relevant in a, in a few moments. The head honcho in New Amsterdam, which again, for us, that's New York City. The head honcho there was a Dutch fellow named Peter Stuyvesant, who really didn't want the Jews to come. He did not want the Jews to come. And he tried kicking them out. He told them they can't come. But... The Jews were involved in the East India in the in, in the East India Company. They were very influential in the business in New Amsterdam, and they told Stuyvesant, "You're going to let you're going to let those Jews stay." And he said, "Fine, but they can't build their own shul." Number one, and number two, he said, "Well, he first of all he called them a repugnant na a race, usur usurers. Jewish settlers should not be granted the same liberties enjoyed by Jews in Holland, lest members of the." Other persecuted minority groups, such as Roman Catholics, be attracted to the colony. What a wonderful guy uh, Peter Stuyvesant was. And he said it's okay for the hill. Let them come on one condition. They can't become public charges. They've got to deal with their own. But if they can't support themselves, don't look to us for help. And that became part of Jewish culture in the United States for the first three centuries, at least, of American Jewish society is the American Jewish community, as it were, did not rely on their non-Jewish, their Gentile neighbors. And for the next 150 years at least, the predominant elements of North American Jewish life were Spartac Jews. Beginning in the early 1800s, we began the second wave of Jewish immigration to the United States. These were typically Jews from Central Europe, German Jews, Prussia, 
you'll say, oh, there are Jews from Poland. They typically were not from Poland. They were, they may have been from culturally Polish areas under German auspices, towns like Posen and the like. And by the time the Civil War rolls around, you have primarily, you still have the old Spanish Jewish population, although they are assimilating away and being absorbed in numbers by the German Jews that have arrived on the scene. And by the year 1881, you have, I don't know, a quarter of a million to a half a million Jews in the United States of America. And beginning in 1881, till World War I, and then ending abruptly in 1921, and then finally in 1923, you have the mass migration of Jew of Eastern European Jewry. When we think of the Jewish community in the United States of America, we typically, most of us, are thinking about this wave of immigration. Between 1881 and we'll call it 1923 being liberal, in that 40 some odd years, approximately 2.5, two and a half million Jews immigrated from Russia. Now, when we say Russia, we don't mean today Russia. We mean Russia from back then, which includes Poland and Lithuania, which were under and Latvia and all those, you know, the, the former Russian satellite countries, all of those places. And 2.5, it's a huge influx. And when you hear most Jews today in the United States, a huge chunk come from that massive wave of immigration. Now, the immigration ended, was cut off after World War I, or during World War I, the United States as a country became very reactionary, very upset that the United States lost so many of its boys in some war that had nothing to do with the United States, 3,000 miles away. And after World War I, the United States became an isolationist country. We don't want to have anything to do with the rest of the world. They passed the Johnson-Reed Act, which cut off immigration for the first time functionally in the, his in, in the United States. and. Immigration ceased in 1921 and 1923. When you hear people saying, oh, why didn't the Jews leave Europe during the rise of Hitler? It's a misnomer. It's one of the biggest misnomers in all of American Jewish history is that, oh, all the Jews, why didn't they leave? They all tried to leave, but they couldn't. There was immigration laws were, weren't there. Hundreds of thousands, millions of Jews wanted to get out of Europe 10 years before the Holocaust, but that were eight years before the Holocaust. They couldn't. Immigration was cut down. These Jews, during that big wave of immigration, where did they land? Where did they go? So they came to Ellis Island. From Ellis Island, where did they go? The Lower East Side, right? The Lower East Side. Now, it's a little bit, we talk about the Lower East Side and the Jews in the Lower East Side. It's a little bit romanticized, although the tenements and how squishy and horrible the situation was are largely correct. It should be noted the Jews got out of there very quickly. Jews did not stay in the Lower East Side predominantly. Some stayed there, Adayamazet, till today. There's still a small Jewish community in the Lower East Side. But most Jews, even that first, that first generation of immigrants, they would stay in the Lower East Side for, if, if not a few months, maybe a few years, and they moved outwardly, radially. They would move to Flatbush, to the, to the Bronx, and they would get out of the Lower East Side. As a matter of fact, the German Jews, the wealthy German Jews, this is at this point, they moved to Uptown. They wanted to get out and not have anything to do with the Jews, the, the huddled masses. And they would go to places like the Har like Harlem, Bronx, Washington Heights, Coney Island, Flatbush, Williamsburg, Borough Park, 
the third generation, if you got even wealthier, you would go places like New Rochelle, Long Island. Assimilation was a fact of life for this early wave, for these earlier waves. And then, of course, in 1929, beginning in 1930, is when our story really begins. Great Depression. What are the causes of the Great Depression? Still not so clear. Depends who you ask, what different causes, the economic troubles. People often understate the international elements of the cause of the Great Depression, particularly the remnants of World War I. The causes in the Great Dust Bowls that was in the agricultural, agricultural failures. There are many economic problems. And of course, Black Tuesday, Black Thursday, in October of 1929, the stock market just absolutely plummets. The market plummets. Did this affect, how did the, the market crash, which is often considered the beginning of the Great Depression, how did Jews fare? How did they do during the market crash? The truth of the matter is not many Jews were hurt by the market crash. Think about it. The majority, the overwhelming majority of Jews in 1929 are first or second generation immigrants from Russia, from Eastern Europe. They didn't have a ton of money to invest in the market. So they weren't directly affected by the market crash. Who was affected by the market crash? Some of those, that second wave of migration, those German Jews, the Jacob Reeses of the world, some of those folks lost money, but the majority of Jews were not affected because they simply weren't wealthy enough to be affected to really have a lot of their, their wealth in the market. However, in 1913, was the formation of the Bank of the United States. Now, that's a, that, sounds, that sounds like the Fed, right? The Bank of the United States. Sounds like it's some governmental agency, right? Bank of the United States was a privately owned bank that was founded in 1913 by a couple of Jewish guys. Uh, the directors objected indeed to the choice of the name because they thought ignorant foreigners would believe that the United States government was interested in this bank and that it was a branch of the United States Treasury. They decided anyway to stick to the name. However, in 1926, a law was passed that you can't name yourself. You can't name this is the COLO, like the federal COLO of the United States of America. You can't do that because it implies that it's somehow backed by the government. You can't do that. But they let Bank of the United States keep its name. Who invested and gave their deposit to the Bank of the United States? Jews. It was a very, very Jewish bank. and It was a very successful bank. By 1930, it had 62 branches in, the United, in New York City. On December 8th, in December of 1930, the bank was doing, they were fine. I mean, no one was doing great after the market crash, but they were still in business. And they were trying to merge with a couple of other banks. For whatever reason, on December 8th, that merger fell apart. They weren't able to, that merger acquisition, it didn't, it fell through. When news of that merger falling through got out, people thought, that it was because the bank's assets were, weren't there. Who ever heard of banks not having enough money? It couldn't happen, right? Ein chadash tachas hashamesh, says King Solomon. There's nothing new under the sun. You, know? you want to know what happens in 2023? Just look at what happened in 1930. It's the same thing. And the Bank of the United States, there was a run on the bank. The Bank of the United States folded. This was the first 
big, big bank to fold in the early days of the depression, it was not, there was no, Uncle Sam did not come in to rescue the bank. And this is where Jews got really, really hurt. According to some statistics, 20% of Jews in, in New York City lost their money. That's a huge number. And that was devastating for the, for the Jewish community. The Bank of the United States, again, most of its investors, most of its loans, most of its business were New York City Jews. And beginning in the 1930s, with, the, with that bank failure, it snowballed with other bank failures, and the economy tanked and crashed. How did it affect Jews? So in the 1920s, many Jewish organizations, things like federations and JCCs and some of these big synagogue centers, they were more than just shoals, but they were like almost community centers. In the 1920s, you had all of these big Jewish institutions came onto the scene. As the mass immigration had peaked, and you now have this big Jewish population, particularly in New York, you have these, but in other major metropolitan cities, you have the rise of federations, JCCs, things like that. Comes 1930, they all have mortgages to pay for these new buildings that they were just built five years ago. And these new organizations became heavily, heavily taxed. They shifted all the big Jewish organizations, they shifted their focus to relief efforts to help Jews who were suffering through the, through the, the economic downturn. It quickly became clear um, that these local Jewish organizations were not going to be enough to take care of the Jewish populations that were, were suffering. And this created a problem. Because you remember our friend Peter Stuyvesant and the culture that he created, Jews did not want to go on public welfare. There was public, there were public welfare programs. This is before FDR and the New Deal. There were public welfare programs available, but the culture of Jews was not to go on such programs. Nowadays, I don't think we have that attitude necessarily societally, but in the early, in the 1920s, in the early 1930s, this was a real problem. And you had families that really, really suffered when they had economic opportunity, oh, I guess, economic there was economic relief available from different governments, but Jews were not interested. It would take another three, four years. It wouldn't be till 1935, 1936, till Jewish families would start going on government welfare programs. Another big issue that emerged with all these big Jewish institutions is in the 1920s, these big Jewish organizations, the big Jewish philanthropists, where were they sending their money? A lot of them were sending their money to Israel. This is the early years of Zionism, number one. This is also post-World War I, if you recall your World War I history, Jewish-American history. There was something called the Joint Distribution, the Joint, which would come back during the Holocaust. But even in the 20s, it was around to help support beleaguered or distressed Jewish communities in Europe. And you have these organizations sending money overseas to Europe, overseas to Israel, and now 1930s, all that money's dried up because the Jewish community in the United States needed to, take care, needed to take care of itself. And it created a big tension between the Zionists in Israel, and even the Zionists in the United States in the 1930s, and a lot of the local Jewish philanthropists who stopped giving their money overseas. Standards of living went down. Interesting in the 1930s is jobs were hard to come by and the economic situation worsened. There were many, so it wasn't 
a huge amount, but it was a substantial amount of Jews in the United States actually began making Aliyah. We usually don't think about that, that Jews in the United States in the 30s moved to Israel. Mainly, you know, the, mainly the Jews who moved were the, the radical socialists. You recall there were many radical Jewish socialists from Russia that moved to the United States. The heat capitalism isn't working. Let's go to Israel. Try some socialism out there. Jews suffered like many ethnic groups when the, when the economic situation got tight. So jobs were hard to come by. And especially if you were a Jew, if you were, I don't know, an accounting firm, you weren't interested in hiring Jews. You would, it was it, it, discrimination and anti-Semitism, maybe not in such an overt way, but the subtle types of anti-Semitism, such as Jews need not apply to this job, that kind of stuff was, was rampant. It became much harder to find, to find uh, jobs. And psychologically, for a lot of Americans, a lot of Jews who had thought of the United States as the golden Medina, as the land of free, home of the brave, of economic opportunity, that psychologically went out the window in the 1930s when they just couldn't find, uh, when they couldn't find jobs. Um, in many cities, Midwest, East Coast, public and private universities imposed limits on numbers of Jews applicants accepted. Harvard University believed that if it accepted students based on merit alone, the student body would become majority Jewish. And they put on, this is when you have really in the 19, really in the beginning of the 1930s, is when colleges really began to put quotas. It, you know, and, and this wasn't considered overtly anti-Semitic. This was considered in the long run, however, this is an important point. While the Great Depression economically, Jews who had arrived in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, tended to be on a very upward trajectory, both economically and socially. The Great Depression was a setback to that. It was a setback on Jewish economic growth, social development, and it put a halt to that. It should not be, it should be seen, however, as a blip in the radar. Because after the Great Depression, it would just continue. And that Jewish quest for upper, upper middle class success, you know, would, would come back. But for the 1930s, it was it was certainly put on hold. Now, certain industries were hurt early on. Certain industries were hurt more than others. Specifically, this is true in any economic downturn, particularly in luxury area. So, like if you were in a jeweler, you were hurt hurt the worst because it wasn't quite as necessary. Things like uh, jewelry, furs, clothing businesses. Early on in the depression, many Jews, we all know, many Jews were in the needle trade, the shmata business. So they were used to seasonal ups and downs and ups and downs. So they weren't as worried. It took them a little bit longer to realize that, you know, this is going to be in for the long, the long haul. Uh, white collar jobs were hit very hard. Interestingly, doctors and dentists and lawyers, very predominant Jewish fields were crushed economically. We view medicine and dentistry as, okay, even if the, there's an economic downturn, people are still going to go to the doctors and the dentists, not in the 1930s. If you had, especially because of the, just how intense the economic pain was, people stopped going to doctors and dentists. Now, a doc, Jewish doctors and dentists, particularly in New York, what they could have done was moved out. You know, move out. The United States doesn't end at the Verrazano Bridge, right? It, there are miles and miles, but Jews don't like 
crossing the Verrazano Bridge. And many Jews, doctors and dentists stayed in New York City. And it was, you know, it, it became a real problem because there just wasn't as much demand for doctors and dentists to, to really be able to fulfill that supply. Lawyers were hit very hard. They couldn't find practices because of subtle anti-Semitism, as we mentioned. Um, some Jews did move out of New York, but most didn't. Or for that matter, metropolitan, large metropolitan Jewish areas. Um, some Jews would hide their Judaism. What's your name, Goldberg? No, it's Jackson. Like that kind of thing, if you didn't look overtly Jewish. Many did, but most didn't. Interestingly, some Jews did go into agriculture. Now, that's not a very Jewish trait. Jews, we're not farmers, typically. But many Jews did. Now, that doesn't mean they moved to Nebraska and Iowa. That's very, un you know, again, not that there's anything wrong with that. Some did. There were Jews. I, I remember reading, I think, when in South Dakota or North Dakota, there was like a Jew. Some Jews did open ranches and farms out in in, in middle of nowhere. But what happened is a lot of Jews moved nearby to the... the urban areas. So places like New Jersey, Massachusetts, I have a friend here who actually his grandfather opened up a chicken farm outside of Boston. That was very common. Agriculture, no matter what the, the economic situation is, people still need chickens. People still need cucumbers. People still need tomatoes. So Jews did go into these businesses, not in droves, but it did happen. Relative to other ethnic groups, this is an important point. Relative to other ethnic groups, Jews actually did better. In other words, relative to the rest of the population, I'm not sure, but relative to other ethnic groups, because of that Jewish mentality of becoming a doctor, lawyer, accountant, Jews were, and that upward mobility, Jews had certain flexibility, uh, tended to have a higher education, were willing to be reached. Now, here's an interesting thing. If you are willing to take Part-time. Now, back then, part-time work was considered a failure. But if you were willing to take a part-time job or retrain and go into other businesses, you could become successful. As a matter of fact, what was considered the safest career choice was going into government service, particularly teachers. If you would get your teacher's license and go into education, you had now a steady gig working for the Department of Ed. Come a, a mailman. These were very safe and high, highly sought after jobs. So if you used to be a doctor, dentist, or lawyer, and were willing to say, you know what, I'm going to become a teacher, it was possible, particularly because um, those jobs you know, required a certain amount of brains. Jews tend to be often, were often smart. Now, what was Jewish religious life like during the 30s? So briefly, let's go through what was happening religiously. You know, when we talk about American Jewry, we talk about the three streams of American, you know, Jewish life, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox. What was happening in the Reform world? In the 1880s, the Reform movement really took hold and formula, formalized with the Pittsburgh Platform, which launched classic Reform Jewry, which really was a repudiation of God, of Israel, of Jewish peoplehood. It was very extreme. They did away with, you know, Jew. There, there's no such thing as the Jewish people. We're Americans who happened to practice Judaism, and they they made some radical changes against Israel. They didn't believe in Zionism at all. Very anti-Zionist, Zionistic. Um, did away with 
even, you know, even rituals that reform today would do. They got away with things like that. But beginning in the 1930s, first with the rise of Hitlerism, which we're not going to talk about much their time remaining is for a different class, many classes, and the need for, the obvious need for the land of Israel, and with anti-Semitism on the rise, and the reality is you're not just an American who happens to practice Jew, uh, Judaism, but you are an, a distinct ethnic group called Jews, that classic reform mentality went away, and it was replaced in the 1930s by what most historians called neo-reform. Which was sort of an updated version of reform. This was mainly led by Rabbi Stephen Wise, who would be a very significant person in FDR's orbit. In my opinion, he's uh, very much accountable for not doing nearly enough for rescue and relief efforts during the Holocaust. But Stephen Wise would become one of the most significant Jews during this period of really creating, updating the reform movement, doing away with Pittsburgh platform updating it with the Columbus platform, and reformed Jewry became a little bit more familiar with what you and I, what we see reformed Jewry looking like today, not quite still changed, evolved way past that, but they did away with those old, with those old ideas. Now, synagogue membership in the reform movement, particularly like places like Temple Emmanuel, they saw membership plummet. They're charging a lot of money for membership in the, in, in the synagogues, but people don't have money to pay for the membership. Temple Emanuel's membership fell 44% in one year. The conservative movement, what was happening away? Now, again, conserv the conservative movement in Jewry was a breakaway. It was not a response to orthodoxy. It was a breakaway from reform. It was still in its nascent early stages, still trying to figure out what it believed and finding their identity. The early scholars of the conservative movement, the Solomon Schachters of the world, they're dead, now replaced by Cyrus Adler and the like. And they're still trying to figure out what they believed in. Are they orthodox? Are they, where are they? They had a very hard time in the 20s and then in the early 30s placing rabbinic students in congregations. Now, that sounds strange if you think about the mid-20th century conservative movement was the powerhouse. All synagogues were filled in the 40s, 50s, and 60s with conservative rabbis. But in the 20s, not so much. And in the 30s, not so much. Because if a congregation wanted a good reform rabbi, they wanted a good reform rabbi. If they wanted to be traditional, we'll get an orthodox rabbi. Conservative had not yet found its footing. The Great Depression, I didn't, I still don't fully understand why, but it seems very clear historically. That as the depression got worse and the years went on, congregations were more willing to hire conservative rabbis. I don't really understand why, but that seems to be what happened. Within the Orthodox community, what happened? In the 10, 1910s, 20s, and 30s, the Orthodox movement or the Orthodox Jewry was a trickle, it was tiny. There were some yeshivas that were founded. Most notably would be Yeshiva College, Ritz, the Rabbi Isaac, Ritz al-Khanan uh, Theological Seminary, Ritz, which is part of Yeshiva College, was founded in the 1910s. It was doing its thing. Torah Vadas, I in Berlin, the yeshiva that I was at, that I studied at, was founded in 1933, middle, right in the beginning of the Depression. Although the Jewish life and Orthodox life was obviously hit very hard, 
they somehow were able to stay through. But it was really difficult. I want to share one passage. There is a, a largely forgotten yeshiva that existed in all of all places, New Haven, Connecticut. It's a tiny yeshiva that existed for not even 10 years, then moved to Cleveland, and then it totally disbanded. But during its brief time, it was just remarkable who studied there. Rav Ruderman, if you're familiar with your American Jewish history, Rav Moshe Feinstein was there. Uh, Rav Shepard Kramer, just giants of American Jewry studied or passed through this yeshiva, either as staff or as or Pencil Scheinberg was there for a brief time. But the situation was bleakest and the most intensive and therefore most expensive, uh, most more expensive Jewish educational institutions. At the New Haven, Connecticut yeshiva, founded by Rabbi Judah Levenberg, one graduate later recalled students regularly went hungry. Quote, every morning a fellow in the yeshiva would get up at 6.30 and go from butcher to butcher with a paper bag and they would throw in scraps of meat. Some of the bakers gave us old bread every, every Friday before Shabbos. Some women would come around and donate a couple of chickens. I remember one Rosh Hashanah when, we all, when all we had was a little challah and two tomatoes, and that was it. Times were really tough in these institutions, but somehow they made it through. There was an article published, absolutely remarkable, in of all places, the Mishpacha magazine. Ever heard of it? The Mishpacha magazine, a couple months ago, some researchers came across the story of a woman named Mrs. Jenny Miller Fagan. No one's ever heard of her. They had never heard of her. Apparently, came across her name by mistake. They actually, they ran it by Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky, Shabbat Rufu Shalema, he should have a speedy recovery. He's not doing well. He's an elderly man, the head of the, the, the famed Philadelphia yeshiva. And he's like, called her like one of the greatest sadekas is one of the greatest women, a real Asia's Chayla, a woman of valor. Who was this woman? Fairly private and with, you know, we talked about Rus and modesty and, and Hatzdei Alechas. She was actually widowed twice and inherited a lot of money, a lot of wealth. And she, I wouldn't say bankrolled, but was a heavy contributor to many of the yeshivas in the United States. Again, there weren't all that many. And to many of the giant powerhouse yeshivas in Poland and Lithuania, there are handwritten notes from the Chafetz Chaim, from Aaron Cutler, from the giants of Torah scholarship during the interwar years, letters of appreciation. Apparently, the Tells Kolel in Tells was renamed the like the Jenny, whatever her name was, the, the Jenny, Jenny Vagan, Miller Vagan Kolel. Intel's, they named she was such a big philanthropist. You know, it's an amazing thing to talk about in Judaism. We talk about wealth, and there's in Judaism, we've got no problem people seeking wealth and being successful. There's nothing wrong with that. But why do we seek wealth? Why do we want to be successful in our life? It's so that we can buy things. If it's so that we can get more tchotchkes in our lives, you know, that look, there's nothing wrong with. Having a nice car within reason, and according to Eshkafi Madregasa, everyone is what's appropriate. But when we dive in every year on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we pray to God, we say, Zachreinu Lachayim, remember us for life, write us in the book of life, Limancha, we pray for God, Limancha, on your behalf. What does that mean, on your behalf? When my rabbis would always tell over, it's an important idea. If you want to fly somewhere, you want to go on a vacation, you want to 
fly business class, it's going to cost you. You want to fly first class, going to cost you. You want to stay in a nice hotel, it's going to cost you. What if you're going on a business trip? What if you're going on a business trip for the company? So they need to take care of their employees. They'll fly you in business class. They'll pay for it. They're going to pay for your ticket. They'll pay for your rental car. They'll pay for your hotel. Why? Because we're not doing it for you. We're doing it for the company. All right, but I would always use that as an example. And we ask God for help, wealth, success, goodness, life. If we're asking God, you know, please give me wealth, God. Why? Because I want to party and I need more trinkets in my life. That's one kind of prayer. But if we ask God for things, for wealth, for success, why? So we can help the cola build a new building, right? Or do good things with our wealth. Support Torah. Do acts of kindness. Help people in need. To do other mitzvahs. So then it's lamancha. I'm asking God, I want you to help me out. Not because I need more tchotchkes, but lamancha. It should go on your bill. It's a company expense. It's a remarkable story with this woman. I don't know exactly her story, how she got her wealth, again, through husbands and, and this and that. But she had apparently had a significant amount of wealth. And imagine like the zechus and the, the mitzvahs that she's had accrued during these difficult, most difficult of times in Jewish history. I was like wondering, I mean, it's such a good question. Right? You have these yeshivas. There are a handful of these yeshivas. My yeshiva, Philly, I in Berlin, these yeshivas and overseas in Lithuania and Poland. You know, how did they make it? There were a couple of people like these anonymous women who would just send every month, you know, significant amount of funds to help support Torah and Judaism. It's just amazing. You can't tell the story of the Great Depression and the Jews in the Great Depression without telling the story of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal. But I always love telling the following story. It's an amazing story. When the economy crashed, Herbert Hoover is still the president. And the story goes, the, the, the story goes that there were World War I soldiers. And they were broke. They were all out of jobs. They had nothing to eat. They were homeless. And what they all decided in 1931, 1932. They would march on Washington. What did they want? It was called the Bonus Army. You remember your AP, your American history, remember the story of the Bonus Army. What was the Bonus Army? The, there were many World War I vets who were guaranteed a bonus for their service for the country, but that bonus wouldn't mature until 1940. But the economic situation was so dire and was so bad, they had this great plan. Let's get that bonus forwarded to us in advance so that we can survive. We'll give, pay, give it to us now, 15 years early. Hoover, although he felt for the plight of these soldiers, there, there, A, there just wasn't enough money in the United States Treasury. Number two, he felt it's not fair. Like the United States had, it, had a whole economic framework with taxes and whatever it was, and they were good. They were going to pay those bonuses as they had made the promise in 1940, they were going to pay them in 1940, 1945. And Hoover felt it's not fair. We thank you for your service. But if we're going to give you that bonus now, we're basically going to have to tax other, other Americans to pay for it. 
And he felt that that's not just. I think he's right. It wasn't fair. It wouldn't have been fair. But be that as it may, the Bonus Army watched, marched on Washington, and they staged protests on the, on the, on, right outside the U.S. Capitol, on the Mall. And they lived, it was called, Hoover got blamed for the downturn. And if everyone remembers, what, what's this called? Right? People used to walk around, you can see, they would walk around with their pockets turned inside out. This was called a Hoover flag. Showed you I'm broke. There's nothing in my wallet. Nothing in my pockets. People used to walk out or walk around. It was called a Hoover flag. And people used to live in homeless encampments. They were called Hoovervilles as a way of, again, blaming Hoover for all the problems. And they set up these Hoovervilles on the United States Mall. And at a certain time, the United States Hoover, they passed the law. They, they were going to, they told them they got to clear out. But at a certain point, like the answer was no, time to go home. You're like on public property. It was disgusting. And they sent the army in, led by Douglas, again, these guys wouldn't come to prominence for another few decades. Douglas MacArthur, Eisenhower, Patton, and they came in, they burnt down these, these, these towns. And it was a sensational story. Here you have these soldiers. They gave so much for the country. And look what Hoover, he sent in the army to attack the other, these homeless soldiers. It was a PR disaster. There's an amazing story in the Torah. The Torah tells us that it's, uh, right, the Jews, one of the times the Jews are in the, in, the, in the desert, they didn't have any water. They complain. They complain. God gets upset. Why are you complaining? Uh, I, I took you out of the land of Egypt. I'll take care of you. Orachayim asks, why? And the Jews are like criticizing. He asks, why are the Jews criticizing? They're in a desert without water. It's a legitimate complaint. And they need water. You're going to out in Vegas. You don't have water. You're dead very quickly. What's the big problem? Why does it? Why are the Jews criticized? And Orachayim says, it wasn't what they said. It was how they said it. It's okay to say, God, we really need water. Can you please help us out? Say it politely and with courtesy and respect. Thank you so much. But they came in, Vailonu, they complained. That was an important lesson in life. 95% of the time, when we get into arguments with other people and there's friction, always remember, always remember this lesson. It's not what you say. It's how you say it. You can have a disagreement with someone. Substantive disagreement. And I don't agree with you. And that's okay. Usually feelings are hurt and there's friction in relationships because of how you said it. You rolled your eyes, you complained, you didn't validate, you spoke too aggressively with too much anger. It's an amazing thing. FDR gets elected. What does he, there was another bonus army, March on Washington. FDR agreed with Hoover. It wasn't fair to pay these guys. On the substance, he was exactly aligned with Hoover. What did FDR do? He came out with, literally, Eleanor Roosevelt came out with cookies. They brought out bands for them, like the band. They schmoozed with them. They probably will do this best. They heard him out, listened to their complaints. Substantively, nothing was different between FDR and Hoover. But how, you know, FDR, one of his real strengths, he was a great communicator. And indeed, get the quote somewhere over here. It's over here. One of the armies, the, they would say, here, let me just read this quick passage, if I may. Roosevelt greeted them quite differently than Hoover had done. The administration set up a special camp for the marchers. 
providing 40 field kitchens, serving three meals a day, bus transportation to and from the, cap- the capital, entertainment, forms a military band. Roosevelt arranged for his wife, Eleanor, to visit the site unaccompanied. She lunched with the veterans and listened to them perform songs. She reminisced about her memories of seeing troops off to World War I and welcoming them home. The most that she could do was to promise positions the newly created Civilian Conservation Corps. We'll talk about that in a moment. One co- veteran commented, Hoover sent the army, Roosevelt sent his wife. And it's just such an amazing thing. FDR was, in 1932, comes to office, and it was the biggest landslide election, from certainly in terms of the Electoral College, in the history of the United States of America. He was beloved by Jews. In all four elections that FDR would win, the lowest percent that he got from the Jewish vote was 82%. 82%. Love him, man. The Jews loved him. He promised the New Deal, radiated op- optimism, um, and he created, again, again, know the history. If you know the history of the New Deal, hours late, we won't go through it. But a whole series of new government agencies, programs. If you recall, the alphabet soup, that's what this period of American history is known as, the alphabet soup, because all these new administrations, FDIC to help protect and insure your money in banks, the, the NIRA, NIRA, the National Industry Recovery Act, BWA, Perks Public Works Administration, WPA, Workers Progress Administration, the CCC, which you mentioned, civilian um, the Civilian Conservation Corps, which basically, if you were a young adult male, it's actually part of government, the army, you can join and you get something like $30 a month or whatever. You got to keep five of it, 25 you had to send back home. And you would go and plant trees and build roads out in parks around the whole country. If you go to that, I remember just a couple, well, not too long ago, it was out in Valley of Fire. And they have, you go past the main entrance on that road. If you go towards the lake a little bit farther, you'll see a couple of houses. There's a little sign. These houses were built at the CCC. You'll see a lot of the parks and, and national parks and things like that were built by the CCC. And they had all these different. Now, many Jews did go participate in these programs. There were Jews who went to the CCC. They were, they, they were had moderate Jewish accommodations. There were some clergy and things like that, but there were many Jews that were involved. Now, many Jews, as I mentioned earlier, lawyers were killed during the Great Depression, with one exception. Many lawyers would join the federal bureaucracy in D.C. as new dealers. They would work in the new deal, in the new government, all these new agencies required a lot of people, and particularly Jewish attorneys, would join the government. Of these agencies, 15% of them were Jewish, but most of them didn't, weren't at the top. They were mid-level. In FDR's cabinet, there was one Jew, Henry Morgenthau, but there was a lot of anti-Semitism associated with his cabinet as well. That was one fascinating story that was late that's worth sharing. One of these, the NIRA, which basically set all sorts of um, business practices to try to reduce um, competition, it set wages, it set um, uh, price controls. And there's the famous sick chicken case, famous sick chicken case, the Schechter brothers. Your name is Schechter. What do you think your profession was? You were a slaughterhouse. You were a butcher. So the four Schechter brothers in New York. There are a bunch of immigrants. And the law back then was, it was called the straight kill. Back then you had chicken coops and you would go to pick the, you know, to the, 
to this butcher and he'd say, I want that chicken. And you would take that chicken, live chicken, and that would be your dinner for tonight. Now, these guys had a Jewish, they were a, a Jewish kosher butcher. The law was the sick chicken cases. You had to pick the first chicken that was there. You couldn't say, I want this one, I want that one. That was illegal. Why? It's like all bureaucracies, all these laws that don't necessarily make sense. But that was the law. And the Schachters were indicted on 60 counts, including having two sick chicken, which they vehemently denied because a sick chicken implies potentially wasn't kosher. And they were very scrupulous about that. But they were indicted on 60 charges, 60 counts of violating the NIRA and the various statutes of the New Deal. These guys were a bunch of Russian immigrants. They didn't understand what was happening. They were indicted, charged, found guilty, sentenced to years in couple, like two, three, four years in prison. But the case was appealed and made its way up to the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, where they struck down, where they found them, they found the laws against them unconstitutional. And if you recall your American history, the New Deal legislation in 1935, 1936, a lot of it was struck down as being found unconstitutional. FDR overstepped his legal authority. And a lot of it was found unconstitutional. That really annoyed FDR. And two things happened. Number one was this called, oftentimes historians refer to the second New Deal. He redid a lot of these programs, but this time made sure that they were kosher. And they followed the constitution. But before that, also with that, is FDR, do you remember his infamous court packing scheme? He was so upset with the United States Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court and the Constitution doesn't say how many justices are, are to be on the Supreme Court. And indeed, it's changed historically. So he had this grand idea of increasing the Supreme Court to 15 justices, and he would stack them with all the, right, they increase it by, I think, what there was a number, like seven new justices. He would stack them with all people that he liked, and he would be able to get all of his legislation, all of his great ideas passed. There was, that was the one big, that was the biggest mistake in FDR's, FDR made very few political mistakes. This was by far his biggest political mistake. There was tremendous backlash. People didn't like that he was, you know, we like our separation of powers. And he's trying to play around with the judiciary. There was tremendous backlash on him. All because of four Lithuanian shochtim. It's a true story. That really was because of those guys. And even afterwards, after they were exonerated, they had no idea what happened. Like, just a bunch of shochtim, a bunch of butchers, slaughterers. We'll just end with one last idea. Now it's late. And again, we, I can obviously go on and on. <laughs> we got to get everyone home. Was the New Deal successful? Was it not successful? Depends who you ask. This is one of those classic questions that will be debated till kingdom come. No one will ever, right? Historic people who are, tend to be politically conservative will tell you, they'll look at all the statistics and they will say that the New Deal legislation all, you know, didn't, by, by the time uh, in 1931, unemployment was 17%. In 1938, it was still 17%. The stock market would not recover that which it go back to 1929 levels till 1954. Amity Schley's in her remarkable book, Hidden Man, will tell you that, you know, classic theory, there wasn't that the New Deal did nothing. It was really just World War II that ended, ended the Great Depression. Politically liberal people will tell you FDR was a saint. He was a hero. He was the Melch HaMashiach. He solved all of our problems. What's the answer? This will be debated. And this is where Nagias come in, where your biases are. People who tend to be politically liberal will tell you FDR was a saint and a genius. People who are politically conservative will tell you he did nothing. He was a 
uh, you know, Russia, Marusha, and it was the World War II that solved the problems. In 1929, when the stock market crashed, people, right, it's part of, and we'll end with this, there was, it's part of United States, it's in our, I guess, mythological culture, is that you have to wait online to, to jump off the top of buildings and bridges after the market crashed. Everyone was just killing themselves, right? Because they, everyone lost all their money, lost all their wealth, and the suicide rate was through the roof. Always want to end kind of on a different note, but it's an important lesson. The Torah tells us, Torah tells us there's a prohibition called Onas Devarim. Losonu, don't oppress your brother. And what that means is you can't cause, can't cause emotional distress. You can't call someone names. You're not supposed to speak negatively about people. Onas devarim, you can't oppress someone, you can't hurt someone emotionally. And Rabbeinu Bachai explains why, he quotes the Talmud, which says, call them not, what's the language? Call Sharim Ninalu Chutz Sometimes God isn't listening to hearing any of our prayers. The answer is no. Except the one gate in heaven, as it were, that's always open is the prayers that come from people who've been oppressed, people who've been hurt, people who have been offended by others. When they call out to God, God will always listen to that prayer. You might not get yes, but God's always listening to that prayer. Herbina Baha'i says, you know why that's true? It's not because God, you know, for somehow is, is more connected to that person. It's because when you are offended, when you're the recipient of abuse, people call us names and people hurt us. Our prayer, it, it touches our soul because being hurt, being insulted, being oppressed by someone else, it hurts us to the core. And it's the most powerful prayer, not because God likes it more, it's because we pray with more fervor. And always, my rabbi would always point out so interesting is, you know, first of all, one of the biggest misnomers, the worst piece of advice, I don't know who came up with this, we teach our children, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt, hurt me, is like the worst, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names are the most devastating, they'll kill you. Much better, you can recover from broken bones. People don't recover from abuse. People don't recover from emotional trauma. Years of therapy to deal with the worst, absolutely the most antithetical idea to Torah values is that notion. And the reason is, is because when you look in the mirror, what do you see? You see who yourself, you see your soul. You don't see your property unless you're a very shallow and vain person. Who are you? Is you the car that you drive? Is you the amount of dollars in your 401k? Is you your house and how big that house or how ugly your house is, is you, your, your body? Or is you something far deeper? And Urbana Baha'i is telling us a healthy person, it, me, those are all external things. You could take away my wealth. You could take away my money. It'll hurt. It's annoying. It can be very traumatic, but I'll recover from that. You could break my bones. I'll figure that out. But Onaz Devarim, when we criticize, we're abusive to other people, it's almost Horrific thing. It's an interesting thing. Statistics show. Bear this out. Everyone thought that everyone was killing themselves after the Great Depression, during the Great Depression. Studies have been done recently. It's totally incorrect. Totally not true. Suicide rate was flat in the year after the, great, after the market crash during the beginning of the Great Depression. Why? Because again, now, who did? I'm sure people did kill themselves. Those are shallow people who define their lives by the amount of money that you have. That's very sad. 
The reality is our wealth and our property and our possessions are very important. No question about it. Money does impact our happiness. And the Great Depression in the 1930s were a very, very, very difficult decade. But we can get through financial difficulties. We can get through physical difficulties. But Onaz Devari, it's such an amazing idea how sensitive we need to be to other people, their feelings, their character, how careful we need to be not to hurt other people. You know, the Great Depression was a very, very, very difficult time. We made it through, country made it through, Jewish community made it through. And please God, you know, we shouldn't have to deal with those kinds of tragedies, those kinds of difficulties, you know, anytime moving forward. I want to thank you all for coming. If anyone has any questions, I'm here to stick around. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.